Okay, I want to welcome everyone to Come and Reason Sabbath School. My name is Russell. I'm filling in today for Tim. I want to welcome uh, any visitors to the class. Uh, welcome back the members and welcome anyone who's listening via the internet. Let's start with some prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for grace and peace and safety this past week, uh, bringing us safely to another Sabbath. We thank you for giving us this day and for what it represents. And we ask your uh, Holy Spirit to guide our study this morning as we learn uh, what it means to be compassionate. Uh, And we take from the example that your Son uh, gave us on this earth. Please guide our lives and uh, help us to be better examples of Christ and his compassion while we're on this earth. And continue developing our character so we may be ready to meet you when you come. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. We are studying lesson number six uh, in our quarterly. It's entitled, The Compassion of Savior. The memory text of Sabbath lesson. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. What, uh, what, do you, what does it mean to uh, share with me what it means, your idea of what it means to be compassionate? I wrote down in my margin Clinton's famous statement, I feel your pain. <laughs> okay. How many of us in here believe that statement at the time it was said? When Dr. Hodges or Dr. Moses sends me a patient that they have put back together, if I told that patient I felt their pain, having never experienced an elbow fracture or a multi-level lumbar fusion, uh, I'd be lying to them because I, I haven't felt their pain. I have no idea. I have little idea what they're going through. Now, seeing various patients in my practice and hearing similar comments and similar questions over and over again, I can develop a tip of the iceberg idea of what they're dealing with and what they're going to be dealing with. But there are a whole lot of levels that I can't relate to these patients. But if you had had that injury, then you could? If I had had a multi-level interbody lumbar fusion, then I could better identify with, with someone like that. Or if I'd had, a, uh, had to have a screws and pins put in my elbow to repair a shattered elbow, then I could better identify with that. So what does it mean to be compassionate? I feel your pain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, in the back. Um, I think it's to be moved to action by your sympathy or something else. Okay, did everybody hear that? Yes. So, no. <laughs> she said it, she thinks it means to be moved to action by a sympathy for what someone else is going through. Correct? Okay. Anything, anything else? Russell? Yes. You act like you feel compassionate because I've been there with you. <laughs> I act like it. <laughs> okay, that means I'm a good actor. <laughs> well, the idea is even though you haven't felt the exact same pain that someone's gone through, you have felt some pain in your own life um, from some, maybe some physical trauma, but it was a different, but you can still relate that it really hurts. And so your compassion is you're relating your experience somehow to what they might be experiencing. Okay, uh, that's fair. I have a knowledge of tissue healing and a knowledge of that there's going to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And a lot of times my patients don't, don't see past the day and the time that they're sitting on my table. So, you know, I can't offer some compassion and hope for better times ahead. But, uh, again... Based on my experience, and I, I, I really think I only offer a tip of the iceberg idea of, of what the what my patients are dealing with. Yes. 
I think that, um, like, people who've lost people in death, mm -hmm. you really don't know what they're feeling until you've experienced it yourself. Well said. I agree. And, and here again, having not experienced the death of a close loved one, I can't identify with those who have. Because you, you write them a sympathy card, but you really don't know what they're going through right. you've done it. Right, exactly. Yes? Can you have mm -hmm. compassion without having love? Mm. Good question. Mm -mm. Any answers? No. You have true compassion without having love. And Russell, one reason you have the knowledge and doctors are sending people to you is because at home the family would have too much sympathy and could not help them in making them go through all of these things that are painful because they would not see the light at the end of the tunnel and help them get better. So that's a, a love too, being able to do this. That's an excellent observation. Yeah, I can, I can remain more objective in uh, prescribing certain treatment, whereas a family member couldn't. And I have offended and angered my own family members by refusing to treat them, by referring them to other professionals that I, that I trusted, because I would not have been able to be objective in my rendering of treatment for family members. So, yes, sir. Seems like compassion is the active part of love. So, kind of the the works of love. Is that a fair paraphrase? You think it's different from empathy and sympathy? It's it's love expressed. Is empathy or sympathy? No. Yeah. It's, it's all part of the package. So, yeah, empathy and sympathy are, are covered under the umbrella of compassion and love. Mm. Can we define compassion as making the effort to relieve someone's suffering? Well, yes, he no? He demonstrated uh, unconditional love and forgiveness in his life, Christ, when he was here on earth. Mm -hmm. So that's what you all are saying, I think, is the demonstration is the actual act. Mm -hmm of the empathy if you've experienced it or the sympathy if you haven't you know to to actually want to act out that love of Christ mm -hmm. toward that person so kind of like James says faith without works is dead. dead okay so let's look at Sunday's lesson real quick the uh, first two passages in Sunday's lesson, Mark, uh, Matthew 4.25 and Luke 17 basically tell us that there were lots and lots of people that came to hear Christ speak and to, to hear his teaching. What do you think are some of the motivations that, that brought these people to listen to Christ while he was on this earth? Curiosity. Okay. Healing. The need to be physically healed. So people with disease processes, leprosy, blindness, deafness, etc., etc., are hoping to be healed. Desperation. Okay, like the woman cured from 12 years of menstrual bleeding. To criticize. There's something to criticize. Okay. To be fed. Okay, figuratively and literally. Literally quite a lot. Perhaps, yep, at least twice that we're told that Christ literally. He accused them, he said, you're coming to me because you saw 
Boredom. Yeah. Self-interest. Entertainment. Entertainment. Yep. Nothing else to do. Hey, did you hear about this guy mm. that, uh, who's doing these things? You know, in this, these people came from long distances. It wasn't just a short trek. I mean, some of them might have taken days to get to where they knew Jesus was going to be. Correct. But and yeah, then they're only... Just out of curiosity or something. I mean, they heard that he was the great prophet. Some say the Messiah. They wanted to see this. He was going to save them from the Romans. He was going to solve their problem in life. Okay. I think some of them came because they were very sick and they wanted to heal. Hoping for, yep, physical healing. Um, why, why do we come to Christ? Why have we come to Christ, or have we? A lot of us the same reasons. Healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. Okay. Problems in our Hopefully, out of love, though. Hopefully, to have our needs met. Okay. Seems like a lot of us come from fear initially. Oh, okay. yeah, excellent. I, that's the one I had written down. Um, yes. How many of us were raised in households where there was an undercurrent of fear? If you don't get right with God, oh. you're gonna burn you as long as you need. Sound familiar? What about hope for a reward? Ever heard that one before? You know, want to walk those transparent streets of gold and swim in the crystal sea? <laughs> yep. But you know how you're going to know all the Adventists in heaven, don't you? They're going to have lots of watches on their crown. No jewels, lots of watches. <laughs> Yeah, watches and brooches. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. <laughs> okay, let's move on. Let's look at Monday's lesson. Monday's lesson talks about Christ's personal involvement in his ministry, and, and they cite uh, a couple of great examples. One is Nicodemus, uh, the story of Nicodemus, and the other is the Samaritan woman at the well. Any insights? as to what what it is about these stories that, that, that touches you or well to me it's amazing to think that who Jesus was I mean he came down from heaven but yet there was nobody too low that he wouldn't speak to personally I mean he wasn't too good for anybody and even people that were shunned by maybe even families mm-hmm. he was not too proud to take the time I mean look at all how busy he was but he took the time to speak with these people okay I thought you know, the actual raised questions in my mind about actual um, touching people, and uh, and I think that um, you know we have different reactions. Some people, you know, have hugged me when they came out of church when I was pastoring. That kind of bothers my wife. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, some of them talk about just kind of putting your hand on their shoulder or something like that. Mm-hmm. Does this deal with this doll or, or not? It's entirely uh, not, personal touch. Yeah, in my examination of this study, it, it didn't involve uh, the, the invasion of personal space or you know the inappropriate touching. You know, in <sighs> Here in the U.S., we're fairly puritanical when it comes to touch, and 
I have traveled extensively in Southeast Asia and the South Pacific, and it's not at all uncommon to see two men, good friends, walking hand in hand on the beach or arm in arm on the beach. And there's, there's nothing homosexual or sexual about it. That's just a display of friendly affection that you know, much of the rest of the world takes for granted. You'd be treated very strangely here in America if two guys went walking arm in arm up the lobby of the church. So there are lots and lots of cultural differences with personal touch. And Jesus was in an area of the world that did touch. Yes. Or at least does today. And Jesus ministered in that type of a community, didn't he? Sure, absolutely. He was betrayed with a kiss on his cheek. You know, very common greeting. So... What's the purpose of touch? I mean, for Christ it was to heal, right? Hmm. When he touched someone, he healed them. And if, if we are having that purpose as a, a touch of peace or love or compassion... I hate to keep bringing this up, but in my practice, that's, that's I touch my patients in, in the process of rehab. You know, many of them have, have told me that that touch meant something. Well, the quarterly says the master's hand had personally touched lives, and those lives, particularly his 12 disciples, went on to touch others personally. That made me think that, that it did involve the physical touching, and he wasn't healing the disciples, was he? Maybe not, maybe not physically. He, he was certainly healing them spiritually. spiritually. But they seem to say that was part of his ministry. He made them know that he was close and cared. Well, I feel like, too, this is a personal feeling. Okay. That people that are more touchy are more loving. You know, if someone you meet and they're willing to shake your hand and pat on the back, or something, to me they seem to be more compassionate people. Are they more compassionate or are they just better at expressing it? I personally feel like they're more compassionate. That may be the way of expressing it, yes, but also, if they don't express it, how do you know they're compassionate? Well, <laughs> Dr. Moses, uh, I think, very effectively defined compassion as an expression, the the, the actual expression of a... Maybe, I guess, so, I guess what I meant, are they more sympathetic or are they actually more compassionate? I mean, they might feel it in their heart. They might be just as compassionate as a touchy person, but if they don't show it, how do I know that? Yeah, that's a good point. Well, don't we have information that people need to be touched so many times a day? I mean, isn't that mm. even a physical need babies. that God put us put within us? Not just babies, babies definitely, but older people just period. Yeah, I mean, certainly there's there's no argument against the value of human touch, Lisa. I read somewhere about how Jesus met the woman at the well where she was. He knew her story, but she knew nothing about him. And so he started where they both had something in common, and that was the thirst. They were both both needing a drink. And so he met her where she was, and she could then relate to him. And then it went on beyond that. So I think Jesus reaches out to us wherever we are and tries to find a common ground so that he can move from there to bigger, greater things. Absolutely. Think for a minute about the, having him having the ability to to read people's minds and thoughts and then think if you had that ability. Yeah, if he'd come to if her I, and said, well, I know you've been... Yeah, you're a whore and an adulteress. 
you know, he, yep. she would have been very defensive and, you know, not interested in him at all, but he didn't do that. Right. There's a hand in the back. I've uh, been reading a book by Dr. Almondi from Harvard University that is a discussion of uh, thoughts of C.S. Lewis and Sigmund Freud mm. compared. And uh, it's really been quite interesting. Dr. Freud would uh, describe the, the, quote, spiritual experience, especially when people were appealing to him to sort of, you know, become more spiritual. He would, he would describe it as a hallucinatory psychosis. And a lot of it, as far as he was concerned, was left so abstract and so subjective that it didn't mean anything. But later on, he was saying that he noticed that his patients who liked him would improve more because of their, you know, their affection for him. And so he actually described that as an expression of love that they had for him and apparently his, whatever they regarded as his scientific benefit to them would be. And so it's interesting that it, it sort of goes around full circle, even with the people who think they're being strictly uh, scientific. Thank you. Let's get back a little bit to compassion. We've, we've talked about empathy and sympathy. Can we add some other elements into the umbrella of what makes up compassion? Unconditional love. Unconditional love. Uh, all right. Are humans capable of unconditional love? No. Yes. How? If we're healed, if Christ heals us, and our relationship with God is restored, and that has to imply or be a part of our restoration with those around us. And, you know, I think the, the biggest issue is that we need to be restored through our relationship with God, and that we truly can be restored. Yes, I completely agree. Probably a better question is, are, are humans <clears throat> untransformed by the power of Christ capable of unconditional love? I don't think the natural human state is capable of that. However, being changed, renewed, transformed by having Christ living in us, not only are we capable of it, it's expected of us. So unconditional love is a component of compassion. Anything else? Compassion yes. doesn't necessarily allow you to do something for someone else. There, You can have a great deal of compassion for someone who's in a lot of trouble with drugs or alcohol or whatever, but you may have your hands tied and not be able to do anything unless the person is willing to let you help them. Okay, so unconditional love involves uh, allowing someone the personal freedom to reject that unconditional love, correct? Yes. After Christ's triumphal entry in Jerusalem, he said, how would I like to gather you like a hen and chicks that you would not? Mm -hmm. I mean, he had compassion for the people, for the Pharisees, for those he kind of contact with, but they did not allow him. So much so that he wept over them. There's a big one that uh, hadn't been said yet. Which uh, brings to mind, is God going to be compassionate at the end of time when he can't bring everybody into his kingdom? Is he still going to... Feel compassion for those who didn't choose him. Oh, right. God will weep for those who right. choose not to come into the city. And I think he will dry our tears as we're as we're crying as well. For friends and family members. What's that? 
versus wrath. I don't see God up there laughing on the walls of the city uh, as the wicked choose choose to reject him. That doesn't sound like the, the God I know. Um, say, say that again, the element of compassion. You said it earlier. No? Forgiveness. Okay, yes. How is compassion related to forgiveness? Or is it? If you're angry at that person and you think they've done something to you, it's pretty hard. You're almost tempted to say, well, they deserve what they get. you know. But if you have forgiven them, whether they've accepted it or not, whether they accept the compassion, whether they accept the forgiveness, still what's going on in your heart must include that forgiveness or will include that forgiveness if it's real. Love's the underlying thing. Yeah, okay, yeah, forgiveness ties in with unconditional love that was mentioned earlier. I thought that forgiveness and love are just, uh, as you say, so much alike. God is forgiveness personified. It's a part of his being. And that's, uh, I think that's a new revelation was to me at one time because you, we tend to, and the devil tends to make us think, if I do what I should, if you confess your sins... He was faithful and just forgive. But he will love you and forgive you. Didn't he say at the cross, Father, forgive them. So they are forgiven. And And they didn't confess their sin. So many people who are struggling with their relationship, though, one of their big concerns is, I don't feel that he's forgiven me. What Mm -hmm. can I do to get him to forgive me? Will I go on a pilgrimage to Mecca? Will that cause him to forgive me? Okay. What do you think it is that makes people think that way? The devil. It's a fundamental misunderstanding about the character of God. Yes. I think compassion, whether it's, well, God is compassion, so any compassion we have comes from Him. <clears throat> I think it has a lot to do with how we view another person. If we have a wrong idea of how God views us, Mm. that's what causes us to think he doesn't forgive us. Okay, so a fundamental misunderstanding about... So if I look at another person, not as someone who did against me, but as someone who's struggling with this disease that we're all struggling with, Mm -hmm. and some of the symptoms, you know... Or manifest differently in their life and yours. I'm going to look at them differently than than just me against you. It's it's just that view we have of one another. That well, it's understanding what love really is. If we really understand love, then we understand that we're forgiven. Okay. Right. I'm going to read uh, something from the last paragraph in Tuesday's lesson. When we consider what happened to the cross and what it cost God in order to be able to justly forgive us our sins, it's not hard to understand why such an emphasis is placed on our learning to forgive others. <laughs> Any thoughts? This was written by a very judicial individual. You think? In order to be able to justly forgive our sins. There's another sentence above that says, and the reason that debt has been canceled is that Jesus himself paid it for us. Right. But think about the woman caught in adultery. You know, it always amazes me that uh, it was just a few minutes ago she was caught in this horrible, quote-unquote, sin. 
And Jesus treated her like she was going to sin no more. Mm-hmm. As opposed to all those that were accusing her, uh, he wrote their sins in the dirt. And even though they were uh, more secret of a sin, not as visible, they shied away from him as soon as they saw their own sin, right? And yet he treated her, already forgiven her, expecting that she would sin no more. Mm -hmm. And I think that's how he looks at us. Mm -hmm. He looks at us as already perfect, already... Already cooperating and healing. Already ready for his love and his forgiveness. Yeah, and thank you, Linda. And Tim has brought a great point up about that same story as well. And not only did he treat the woman uh, with compassion and, and without condemnation, but he treated those who were trying to trap him the same way. He didn't condemn them either. He didn't embarrass right. his enemy, his, quote, enemies, and uh, drawing lines to them. These sins are his, and those are his, and these other ones belong to that one back there. He just, he just wrote them in the sand and wrote them in the dust, and each one of them felt that conviction. They recognized themselves in the words in the dust, and they, they felt that conviction of, of heart and kind of disappeared. Well, I think it takes a great burden off of you when you really say, God has forgiven me. God loves me. God has forgiven me. It's, now it's my choice. Right. And the point I wanted to make is that, you know, how do people come to the, I asked the question, how do people come to the idea that God can't forgive them or God won't forgive them? And it's here in the teacher's quarterly. It's in your quarterlies. This this stuff is pervasive. This idea that, that God cannot be just and forgiving at the same time. Two hands. Yes. We're taught from when we're born to when we die by parents and everybody else say you're sorry and Mm. you say you're sorry and then you're forgiven Mm -hmm. you do something in order to win yeah yeah well said you work for that forgiveness i cheated you out of a hundred thousand dollars i'm sorry Mm -hmm. i'll pay it back then you forgive me right everybody pays for their crimes here too we don't forgive them we make them pay for the crimes and then forgive them. Right. A, a fundamental misunderstanding about the government of God. Yes? Yep. Being like probably the only non-parent in the room. Not quite. <laughs> okay. I would, you know, and I think that parents have a right, there's a good reason for doing that. And I think there's a reason for us to look at it as asking for forgiveness because God knows and your parents know that you will not experience forgiveness until you acknowledge. And so for me, I don't think that it's wrong. It's what's unfortunate that we stop there, that we don't acknowledge the appropriateness of asking and paying back. And all those things are key to experiencing forgiveness. Whether the forgiveness is there is not in question. It's unfortunate that we've been left with the concept that that's contingent, that forgiveness is contingent. But it, our acceptance of that forgiveness is contingent upon our doing those things. I agree with you. Well said. And also, this brings me to another point. Who benefits from forgiveness? 
The one forgiving or the one being forgiven? Or who benefits more? Both parties. Who, who do you think benefits more? One being forgiven. I don't have a right answer for this. Uh, I, I think it's in the character development of both parties because in order to be forgiven, it has to be part of our character, like it's part of God's. In order to accept forgiveness, we have to get over our guilt. And like they were saying, we have to, sometimes we have to actually say we're sorry. And then it becomes part of our character to know how we need to behave and how we need to be careful and how we need to treat each other. And so it's part of character development for both sides. Right, right. I think Jack Provanger says it enables us to accept our acceptance. He is forgiving you instantly, but you can't believe it. Unless you do some merit off the earth, in or saying. Well, if you've ever experienced a situation in your life where you've been on both sides, like if you've done something terribly wrong to somebody and they've forgiven you, how wonderful you feel. Then again, if somebody has done you wrong and you forgive them, what a wonderful feeling that is to you that you have forgiven them. I mean, I, I think both parties. The times that I have wronged someone and they've forgiven me, I actually felt rotten. <laughs> I didn't feel great. I, I, burning coals were heaped on my head. But were you not glad they forgave you? Would you rather him not have forgiven you? Sometimes, yeah, because because then it would have justified me. <laughs> when, you know, we we seek these we seek these self justification that you know if we treated someone meanly. And they treat you meanly back, and they say, ha, I, I, I was right to treat them that way. If we treat them poorly, and they, they readily forgive us, that, that burns. Mm-hmm. That hurts. Yeah, but I know you've never done anything like that. <laughs> not, not since yesterday. <laughs> yes. This goes back to our image of God and um, what we think love is, what we think um, God is, and what God's love really is. If you read um, 1 Corinthians 13, in verse 5, it says, Love keeps no record of wrongs. And yet we have this image of God with these books. You know, and um, yep. I, I uh, unfortunately have loaned out my copy of Tim's book, so I couldn't look up his chapter on five myths of forgiveness. Myths of forgiveness yeah. And his website was down this morning, so I couldn't cheat and uh, <laughs> go to that method. But um, I think that we are talking about the same issues, is that um, forgiveness is for the person who is in relationship to another, regardless of their harm to that individual. It releases the individual. Not It does not justify the, the bad act. Right. It's a, it's a restoration of your side of the relationship. You know, it doesn't give them permission. It doesn't mean that what they do is wrong. And um, I think if you were to read Tuesday's, or talk to Tuesday's author, they made consider forgiveness to be equal with salvation, which is another one of Tim's myths of um, forgiveness, is that forgiveness does not equal salvation. You know, Right. That, Take, for example, those that nailed Christ the cross. They were forgiven, and were forgiven even before they went through the, this terrible act. And yet, that does not mean their, their relationship is restored with that individual. Right. Sharon, do you have a hand up? 
um, kind of all around these points that are being said, uh, and, and back especially to the parenting point. Uh, the Bible does tell us to confess our sins. We, we do have to acknowledge, you know, the fact that we're all sinful, and that, that's just part of the deal. And so um, the accepting forgiveness I get, especially as a parent, I do accept my child unconditionally. And I think that's one of the real ways that God has set this example up, you know, with the, the father-son relationship that is demonstrated, you know, what he did out of love with his son for all of us, all of that stuff. I do that for my children. Unconditionally accept no matter what's going on. But do they, do I still need to teach them to acknowledge to seek forgiveness, I think that's the way that we all learn as we're growing up. It just doesn't automatically happen because we're we're, we're all sinful people. We're, we all have hardened hearts, and just like you said a second ago, you know, I kind of are wishing we can be justified in that feeling, you know, and we hang tight. With that. Why does God ask us to confess our sins? For our benefit. <laughs> okay, not for His benefit, not to plead. With him to bestow some of that endless forgiveness that he's holding to himself. And I'm not giving it out unless they ask for it, unless they beg for it. No, the confession of sin is to work on our, is to soften our hearts. Exactly. It, if, we, if we think we're doing fine, what's the point? I, I don't need any help. I'm good. We do have to teach that. And so, on, on Certainly. All, all the moms and dads in the room, <laughs> you know, that is something that we do have to foster, not just in our children, but with one another. And so, if I come to you and I seek your forgiveness, hopefully, you're going to have something click in your head, you know, I, I appreciated that that person was, you know, thinking about that and, and forgave me. I hope the next go around, I'm going to remember that and do that and pass it on. Thank you for the input, and I understand where you're coming from. I have to think from my own experience, though, when when I had done something to offend my sister, and mom or dad said, say you're sorry, I didn't feel I was sorry. I said it. I went through the motions, but I, I wasn't sorry. You have to thank Most of the time. Exactly. Just like, well, just like in my work. I'm a great actor. I act, I, I act like I'm compassionate. <laughs> so, now, I don't have near the, the understanding of Sister White's writings that Tim does, but I, I, I do understand that there's somewhere that says that taking uh, approximate steps toward uh, correct behavior will actually work on the character. Right. So there, there is some benefit for a parent to uh, insist a child, and, and but you know, like, like Karen said, as people... We often drop the ball. We often stop short of, you know, we often stop with, say you're sorry. We, we, don't, we don't carry it on to why and to a logical conclusion. We don't get out of the milk. That's the problem. Yeah, exactly. We're still feeding on baby food. Thank you. We're not, we're not getting to the, the meat. Well, why, why is it that we're doing what we're doing? I don't know. <laughs> you know, and that's what—that's what's uh, difficult, I think, to go from your childhood to teenager, and to assimilate those same ideas that you were taught through school. Then, and then it becomes now—is it my own? 
Do I take it on now? And why is it? Is it? It's the same analogy about brushing your teeth. Mm -hmm. Do I brush my teeth now as an adult because I know that then my teeth will uh, last my lifetime, or am I still brushing it because my mom told me to? You know, and that's the same thing. Right. We need to get into the meat of the word. So the reasons why God wants us to do all these things because they develop our character to be more like His. Thank you. Well said. Any other thoughts on forgiveness before we... Super nanny. Beg your pardon? Super nanny. I have not. That's really not my kind of show. Out of control children uh-huh. are breaking things, hurting each other, hurting their parents, kicking their parents, cussing at their parents. And she makes them sit on a naughty chair. And she won't let them up until... I mean, she makes the parents make the children sit on a naughty chair until they sit there three minutes if they're three years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, they have to say, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. And they have to hug their parent at the end of that period. And uh, you see these kids at the beginning of 30 minutes, they are out of control. At the end of the 30-minute show or an hour show, whatever it is, they're in control. But they've had to go through a learning process. And I, I don't know how she does it, but she sure changes these kids in 30 minutes. <laughs> it might be the magic of television. No, but she spends two weeks with it. Or, or Ritalin, or I don't know. A week or so. Okay. <laughs> she points out how important it is that children learn from an earliest age to say they're sorry. And then the parents, it's very important for the children to experience their parents' forgiveness. That's the point that she's making in all of it. No matter how young they are, they need to experience saying, I'm sorry. Even when they do it hatefully, like, I'm sorry, you know, <laughs> and then the parent hugs them. But by the end, they understand. So she's teaching Christianity. Hmm. Yep. <laughs> okay. I haven't had the pleasure of super nanny. Yes. Because that model is how so many Christians see God, so many Adventists see God as forgiving and giving a hug after they've said they're sorry. But we need to go a step beyond that and teach our children, I love you anyway, even even through all this. I love you before you say you're sorry. I will never change that. That's what we need to go. And that's how God is. Yes, he wants us to acknowledge our mistakes so that we can grow. But um, he never stops loving us. It's, he's always there. His forgiveness is always there. Right. Well said. How many of you have ever heard from a parent or a loved one if you disobey, mommy won't love you, or, or something along that. That may be a little drastic, but something subtle along those lines that that indicates that a parent's love and consideration is dependent on the behavior of a child. Ever heard it? God doesn't love bad children. Good one. Excellent. Children aren't stupid. You, know, you look at the brain capacity of a five-year-old. And th- their brains are just sponges. They are soaking up everything. And to hear something like that is going to get in and infect the thought processes of a five-year-old. God doesn't love bad children. Well, I better be good. I fear God. Once you are forgiven or you have forgiven someone, like he mentioned the $100,000, somebody's embezzled $100,000, this person may be forgiven but they also have to prove that they could be the bank president again. You don't put them right back in a situation until that person has proved that they are worthy of this. Correct. And that's, again, one of the myths of forgiveness is that forgiveness means that trust has been restored. If your spouse has cheated on you, 
and you truly forgive that spouse, does that mean that you trust him again? No. no. Trust must be restored. God trusts us again right after he forgives us? <laughs> yes, because he loves because he loves unconditionally and we are learning to love unconditionally yeah. or trying to be true yeah god understands that in our humanity we have to have boundaries and, and you know set set some boundaries for people, some people who cannot be trustworthy otherwise they take all our money right all our personality all our character right well, he trusts that we're going to fail again. That's what he does. <laughs> but he's going to love us anyway. You asked the question a while ago. Who benefits the best out of forgiveness? Mm-hmm. I loaned to someone that it was not a gift. It was a loan. I was just going through some papers the other day, and it's been several years ago. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought, I've not held that against that person because it doesn't do me any good. I won't get the money regardless. And I might as well just love the person, forget about it. But you know, they don't even speak to me anymore. And why do you think that is? Because they feel guilty. Yeah. yeah. But I, more than likely, I still forgive that person for not paying the law. I just cross it off. Tim told a story in here one time about an attorney who had a dozen or so clients that owed him money and he was convicted that he needed to forgive that debt forgive all the dozen debts so he had a dozen certified letters typed up stating that debt was being written off debts forgiven thank you for your business and in a certified letter you have to have a signature in order for the post the post office to deliver it well the post office delivered all the letters and only I think only one person actually signed for the letter and, and opened the letter to see that the, their debt had been forgiven. Eleven of the people rejected the letter. They saw the attorney's letterhead uh, on the envelope and thought, oh, here he comes. He's, you know, he's going to sue me for this debt. They wouldn't take the letter. Because most of the time, that's exactly what that is. That's a, you know, if you don't accept the acknowledgement, then, then legally you have a little bit more like, oh, I didn't... I mean, if it had been a letter of trying to get them to pay. A letter of judgment. The, the, the judgment of wage garnishment was being set against them. Yeah. So. Yes, sir. I don't, I don't get a chance to watch over, but I have heard that she says <laughs> if somebody comes to her and wants money, she will give it to them if she wants to see them again. If not, she will loan it to them. <laughs> Doesn't scripture say that we're to loan that we are to loan money as if it were a gift? That we are to loan and not expect repayment? Am I mistaken in the, in that? All right. Um, let's look at Wednesday's lesson real quick, uh, entitled "God with Us." Let's read John chapter one, verses one through eighteen. Pick a couple verses and shout it out, and then someone take take up the slack till we get through 18. I'll start. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made, and without Him nothing was made that has been made. Verse 4. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. There came a man who was sent from God, and his name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him 
all men might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who comes after me, ranks before me, because He was before me. Out of the fullness of His grace, He has blessed us all, giving us one blessing after another. God gave the law through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only Son, who is the same as God, and is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Okay, this is a powerful passage. This says a lot about God being with us. What does that, what does that mean, God is with us? Well, in this case, I think it meant more than he's with us today, we believe, don't we, through his spirit. Uh, but he actually came and lived in the human flesh. And, and of course, what's amazing to me that for, you know, 30 years, he went about in that little village to the one who had created and upheld worlds. And he worked in the carpenter shop and so on. So I think that the people had clear evidence to see he is one of us. And, and I've, I've understood, I've never had the privilege of being a missionary, but I've understood that you have to live there with the people a while. And we're using young couples uh, today to be, what is it, mission they, they go out, and I can't think of the term right now, and live where there's no Adventists. And I think somewhere I read, maybe it's in this lesson, that that's one of the places that the church is growing fastest, is where people go and live there. Okay. What else does it mean to have God with us? Does it mean, like the lesson suggests, that besides coming to die as a substitute for us, Jesus came to earth to show exactly what God is like. Mm. Mm. They got it reversed, didn't they? They got it half right. Yeah, okay. Yes. I guess hopefully there is a new earth and a new creation totally. You know, that God, that Christ will actually physically come back and physically create a new earth. But the whole thing seems to be about changing the paradigm of the reality of life as we know it now. And that's what really Christ was trying to do. Yes, through his culture and through his society, you know, the Jewish society and so forth. But it's also something that can get to the soul of everybody on earth. Okay, thank you. Time has gotten away. I'm going to have to wrap it up right here. Well, thank you all for insights and questions and contributing. Thanks a lot. Let's uh, finish the prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for condescending to humanity to send your son to reveal your character and to provide the only way that humanity can be healed from this infection that we call sin. For winning us back to acceptance and to trust 
and for giving us the the power to transform our characters into those like uh, like yours. We ask for your continued uh, guidance and assistance and, and power in doing that. Uh, and we ask that we all be standing when you come again. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you all. Enjoy the rest of your weekend.